So, yeah, I really didn't care for this research at all. It was really difficult to do. There were times when I had to, like, take breaks, you know, because it was just – it's so – like, whether you believe in the conspiracy side of it or you believe in the official story side of it, it sucks either way. Like, it's bad no matter what. Yeah. I mean, especially, I think, you know, for, for those of us that were actually – you know, old enough to remember what we were doing when it happened. I mean, it was still... It was, I was in math class when I found out. I was in ag. I was in ag class, but it was... I mean, it's just one of those things, like, everybody had to process. It's like, what the mm-hmm. fuck, dude? It's it's really heavy stuff, so uh, be warned on this episode. It is a very, very heavy episode. Um, and we're going to do this one, which is going to be the official story episode, and then... Um, the next episode we do will be the conspiracy episode. So if you are looking for a conspiracy theory on what happened on 9-11, you are not in the right place. Uh, we were talking about the official story of what it says in the 9-11 Commission report, what you saw on the news, things like that. Um, it's kind of cut and dry. But again, it is still very, very heavy stuff. So be warned, I guess. That's the first trigger warning we've ever done on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we've covered people getting eaten, but I mean... This is real fucked up stuff. So, yeah, like we said, today is the first of two episodes of 9-11, and here we go. And that's what I decided. I'm going to murder my mother. I didn't feel that I had to face what I had done ever. He killed 33 times. I'm the king, man. I decide who does what and where they do it at. So next time you see me, (laughs) I will kill you. Um, Welcome to the show, guys. What? what? <laughs> Let me do the intro. Yeah. Um, welcome to the show, guys. I'm Corey, and I'm joined by Johnny here. And uh, unfortunately, Sabina is no longer doing the show with us uh, due to personal reasons. We are not. We don't hate her or anything like that. Just personal slash scheduling reasons. And so uh, it's back to me and Johnny now. She has and a lot today, of shit going on. Yeah. Some people have a lot more stuff going on than Johnny and I. So right. uh, our lives are somewhat boring. Somewhat. Uh, so yeah, like we said, we are talking today about 9/11, and it's kind of funny because I was listening to another podcast about 9/11, and they made a connect. They made a, I guess, an observation that I never really realized, and it's when people are talking about 9/11 as like the official story way. They say 9/11 because 9/11 has kind of become a brand, you know, as far oh, as absolutely. like never forget and like selling plates and flags and stuff. Well, it's but like when, D-Day or you know. Yeah, like JFK assassination and stuff like that. But n- when you when people talk about 9/11 as a conspiracy, they usually refer to it as September 11th, 2001. Like it's more official because it's not buying into the brand. It's like this is what we believe happened and we are going to get to what we believe happened on the next episode. But this episode, like we said, is the official story. So 9-11 is one of the most historic and famous terrorist attacks on U.S. soil, and uh, it actually isn't the first attack on the World Trade Center. I wasn't alive when the – actually, I was alive when the first one happened, but I was not even aware of what was going on. But uh, it was the one that did the most damage, the one in 2001. The other one happened in 1993 and was a truck bomb that only killed six people. Yeah, it, was it killed seven. six. People. I don't know why I said only six people. Like it's not a lot of people. Well, I mean, I, because you've had not eleven on the brain, and comparatively, though, yeah, it's just I mean, it, it's just a massive difference as far as casualty count. September eleventh, two thousand one, was four attacks carried out by Islamic terrorists who had connections to Al Qaeda against the United States, and the attack killed two thousand nine hundred and sixty-six people and injured over six thousand others, and. 
stupid irrelevant detail but i'll include it is it caused at least 10 billion dollars of infrastructure and property damage um, um, which is pretty substantial i mean 10 billion dollars is a fuckload of money but i mean can't put a price on war right. well it's a lot of damage but yeah when you put it that way but we'll save that part for the next episode yeah, I'm going to be going a little back and forth because yeah, it's hard for yeah. me it's to gonna be hard. read this without getting pissed the whole time. Yeah, yeah, so. just, just know that we're going to be saying a lot of things today in air quotes. So Yeah, so you'll, you'll, you'll see them in your head when we do them. So before we get into what happened that day, let's talk a little bit about these dickhead hijackers that uh, carried out the attacks. There were 19 of them. 15 of the 19 were citizens of Saudi Arabia. Two were from the United Arab Emirates, and one was from Egypt, and one was from Lebanon. They were put into four teams led by the pilot hijacker and accompanied by three or four muscle hijackers used to subdue crew, pilots, and passengers. The first ones to arrive in the U.S. were Khalid al-Midhar and Nawaf al-Hamzi, who settled in San Diego County, California. And in January 2000 oh, – I'm sorry, that happened in January 2000. After them, three more showed up, the pilot hijackers Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shahi, and Siad Jahar in mid-2000 to do their flight training in Florida. And the fourth hijacker pilot, Hani Hanjar, arrived in San Diego in December 2000, and the rest of the muscle hijackers arrived in early and mid-2001. They really spaced so that, that know, out. Yeah. We're they, just uh, trickling in, man. Just, just trickling in. Well, they were, coming, they were coming back and forth for years before that. I mean, right. I didn't include everything about them, up, obviously, for time constraint, but, I mean, they were coming back and forth with the visas and all kinds of shit, tourists, like visas and stuff, and they were just coming back and forth for a really long time. And they weren't – we'll get into it on the next episode, but they weren't really hiding why the fuck they were here, and nobody seemed to pick up on it. It was a different um, time, man. It was pre-9-11. Everything changed after 9-11. Yeah, no I mean, I got to take my fucking shoes off now. now at the airport, so thanks a lot. Yeah, files, uh, fingernail clippers, yeah. shit like that started showing up on the radar like, ah. Eh. Can't even, t- can't even take know. my box cutter on the plane anymore, man. Yeah. What the fuck? I mean, if I've got a fork in my pocket, I've got to leave that at the airport. So now that we know who these guys are, let's get into the official story of 9-11. So the morning of September 11th was a nearly cloudless morning, which was great for flying and I guess great for crashing planes into buildings. The employees of the World Trade Center were getting ready for work and getting on their way, and others were heading for their jobs at the Pentagon. People were lining up at the White House for a tour, and George W. Bush was in Sarasota, Florida on a morning run. For the people heading to the airport, among them were Mahatma... Fucking stupid name. Hey man, Among those fucking them words were, are, yeah, they're, they're, their names are... <laughs> their names... It, the, I mean, is that a racist thing? It's just like, yeah, you're not used to pronouncing some of these letters. It's like, holy shit, dude. It's ho- I, I only know them from, like, watching videos and hearing other people say them correctly. That's the only way I know. Yeah. No, um, I'm pretty sure if I showed up in the Middle East, I... I, I well, I've, I've been over there, but I feel more white there than I do in Mexico. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, the names are, I mean, right. we're closer to Mexico. I feel like we have a lot more Mexican citizens than we do uh, Saudi Arabian citizens. But I don't know the statistics on that. Right. So among the people headed to the airport were Mohammed Atta and were Mohammed Atta and Abdul Aziz Al-Homari, who arrived at the airport in Portland, Maine. So the first planes we're going to talk about are American 11 and United 75. Atta and Omari boarded a 6 a.m. flight from Portland to Boston Logan International Airport. When Anna checked in, he is selected by CAPS, a computerized pre-screening security system, and under the security rules, the only consequence was checked bags were held off the plane until it was c- confirmed that he had boarded the aircraft. Obviously, 
This did fuck all to stop anything. No. Atta and Omari arrived in Boston at 6.45 a.m., and seven minutes later, Atta apparently took a call from Marwa al-Shahi, a longtime friend of his. They spoke for three minutes, and this would be their final conversation. Between 6.45 and 7.40, Atta and Omari, along with Satam al-Sukami... Sounds good to me, Wai- dude. <laughs> Whale al-Shahi, Walid al-Shahi, uh, checked in, boarded... Checked in and boarded American Airlines Flight 11, headed for Los Angeles, and the flight was scheduled to take off at 7.45. In another Logan Airport terminal, Shahid joined by Fayez, Bani Hamid, Muhammad al-Shahid, Ahmed al-Ghamdi, and Hamza al-Ghamdi checked in for United Airlines Flight 175, also bound for Los Angeles. A couple of Shahi's colleagues were obviously unused to travel, and according to United St- a United ticket agent, they had trouble understanding the standard security questions, and she had to go over them slowly until they gave the routine, usual answers. I mean, if you're going to come and try to attack America and fly in the planes, maybe you should learn to speak English. I mean, I'm not one to say English is the official language, because it's not, but I mean, if you're going to try to be inconspicuous, that should have been the first on your fucking stupid list. Uh, I mean, the Northeast has always been known as a melting pot, and you've got these guys, like like we've already mentioned, uh, tension wasn't high prior to, to this morning. It's so hard to remember what everything was like pre-9-11. I mean, we were threatened far, I mean, by I Muslims. Fourth grade. I mean, we, they were always a thing. I mean, it, it'd be ridiculous to say that that hasn't always been going on, and there hasn't been some sort of discomfort or distaste towards the Middle East from our side, but... The way that we look at them today is much more critical than uh, prior to September 11th. And by we, we mean general society, not yeah. we as in the Mesa Jar Chronicles. Because yeah, we yeah, are no, like we, we are an equal opportunity uh, podcast, and uh, we like all people. I was anyway. I don't want to get off topic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so their flight was scheduled to depart at eight o'clock a.m. Obviously, like we said, the security measures were different back before the attacks, and passengers, including the hijackers, were walked through metal detectors, calibrated to detect items with at least the metal content of a 22 caliber handgun, and anyone who might have set off the detector would be screened with a hand wand, and this would pinpoint, obviously, the location of the metal, and would then be shown to the security agent by the passenger. After that, an x-ray machine would have screened the carry-on bags, and then the screening was in place to ID and confiscate weapons and other prohibited items, just like it is today. So none of the checkpoint supervisors recall any suspicious activity regarding the hijackers' screenings. But no, I was saying, uh, the list just has changed. Uh, the, the things that they were finding, or may have found, weren't even on the list of prohibited items then. I mean, there's no, I mean, w- do you have another explanation on how these guys walked through metal detectors with uh, box cutters and were able to board the plane? I mean, there's, and they had box cutters, they had mace, I mean, it's... Things were Which is a liquid. Different. Yeah, I mean, you're... you're yeah. I don't know. I, I think... Uh, was toothpaste even on the list before then? I mean, I couldn't even take my smart water on a plane. And, I mean, these guys got mace on the plane. Yeah. Just... Things were different. Atta and Omari and Sakami took their seats in business class. Seats 8D, 8G, and 10B. The Cherie brothers had adjacent seats in row 2, Walid in 2A, Walid in 2B, in the first class cabin. They boarded American 11 between 7.31 and 7.40, and the aircraft pushed back from the gate at 7.40. So now, we're all next. We're all in line at school getting dropped off, man. We're in the middle of the week. This is like early in the morning. This is before people are even at work. And this people is 7.40 Eastern time, so it's still, what, 6.40 yeah. 
Central, so I mean, I'm. I probably wasn't even at school yet. I was getting up for school. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think of the rest of the world is still going on when all of this is just a mundane, just a regular old normal morning. I mean, we've had a billion September 11ths before this, and this one, this this is the big one, though. Well, our generation experienced it. It's like my mom's generation sitting in front of the TV watching the Challenger go up in 86. It's just yeah, one of those devastating is, things that people are just getting to eyewitness. It's just, it just fucking rocks this is our generation's. This is our generation's JFK. Yeah, I mean, kind of, yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, as far as kills, this is much more devastating. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, as far as conspiracy theories it's go. It's just as political, probably. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Um, so the next plane we're going to talk about is American 77. So hundreds of, south, hundreds of miles southwest of Boston at Dulles International Airport in the Virginia suburbs, five more men were preparing to take their early morning flight. At 7.15... Khalid Al-Midhar and Majid Mokhed checked in at the American Airlines ticket counter for Flight 77 bound for Los Angeles. Within the next 20 minutes, Hani Hanjur and two brothers, Nawaf Al-Hamzi and Salim Al-Hamzi, showed up to the airport as well. So Hani Hanjur, Khalid Al-Midhar, and Majid Mokhed were flagged by caps, same as the previous plane. The Hamzi brothers were also selected for extra scrutiny by the airline's customer service reps at the check-in counter. So... I mean, I know all of this is kind of mundane, but these guys got, I mean... Yeah, but they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're coming up to obstacles. They're getting challenged the whole way through. This, it, there's a quote that says, like, this, the system didn't fail these guys. The system was rigged in their favor. I mean, these guys are just running through security like nothing, and they're about to do something god-awful, and somehow they still get through all this. I mean... Right. It's, it's crazy. So... They were selected because, okay, get this, neither of them had photo ID, they didn't speak English, and the worker found them suspicious. How the fuck do you show up to the airport with no ID? Uh, you know, I mean, I, mean, I could see how, how that's an accident. I don't think ID. that was part of his plan. I think that he was the, the fuckhead in the group that forgot his ID at the hotel room. He was just a fucking or stupid guy. A hideaway well, house, or whatever stupid, the fuck. Wherever they were staying. Yeah, at. no, I think that was a mistake, and he still managed to make it work for him. Somehow or another. So... Yeah, somehow they still managed to get through. And again, their only consequence was their bags were held off the plane until it was confirmed they were on board, which they didn't give a fuck. They didn't need the bags. Midhar and Maked placed their carry-on bags on the x-ray belt and proceeded through the metal detector. Again, they both set it off. They were then redirected to a secondary metal detector. Midhar didn't set it off and the second one, Midhar didn't set off the second one and was permitted to go through. Maked set off the secondary metal detector and was directed to a worker with a wand, and he somehow fucking passed this inspection. So maybe, like 20 minutes later, maybe at 735... Maybe, maybe they passed on, you know, maybe they maybe they convinced them that there were, like, metal rods in their arms or legs or a belt buckle. Well, now you got to take your belt off. Did you have to take your belt off before that? I don't know, man. I never flew before the Army, so... Well, yeah, I guess I didn't either. I mean, it could have been anything. I mean, they, could, they probably came up with something. I mean, they were pretty dedicated to getting this shit done. Which is crazy because so you know you got to be sweating bullets. You got to be looking. How do you not look suspicious when you've got this many obstacles and you're about to do what you want to do? Or I mean, do. and you know what you're about to do. Yeah, I don't know. So, about, so about twenty minutes later at seven thirty-five, Honey Hunter placed two carry-on bags on the X-ray belt and went through the metal detector without alarm. A little while later, Nawaf and Salim Alhamzi entered the same checkpoint. 
Salim Alhamzi cleared the metal detector, Nawaf Alhamzi set off the alarms for both the first and the secondary metal detector and was then waved with a wand and somehow passed it again. And the footy, there's video footage of them uh, in the airport going through the thing and it said that there's an unidentified item in their back pocket. So who the fuck knows if that's a box cutter or fucking – it could be anything at this point. Right. Um, well, it's got a clip. It's clipped on its rim supposedly. So it's probably a, a box cutter Probably Some something sort. like that. So at 7.50, Mahid Moked and Khalid Amidhar boarded the flight and were seated in 12A and 12B in coach. So Hani Hanjur assigned to seat 1B in the first class cabin, and the Hamzi brothers sat in 5E and 5F, joining Hani Hanjur in first class. It's like a fucking tongue twister, man. Um, it is. So if you don't know, Hani Hanjur is a pilot, so that's why he's in first class closest to the cabin. So the next plane we're going to talk about is United 93. Now, if you don't know, United 93 didn't actually hit anything. Um, United 93 was the one that went down in the field in Pennsylvania because of the passenger uprising. There's actually a movie about it, which is actually uh, pretty good if I remember right. I've seen it um, a long time ago. But, yeah, there's like a movie. It was like in theaters and shit. So so between 703 and 739, Saeed Al-Ghamdi, Ahmed Al-Nami, Ahmad Al-Haznawi, and Ziad Jahar checked in at the United Airlines ticket counter for Flight 93. And if nothing else in this episode goes right, I think I nailed those fucking names that time. I think you did a fantastic job, to be honest. I mean, I had to say I'm slow, but I think I fucking nailed them that time. No, yeah. Um, So they were going to, again, L.A. So the four men actually passed the security checkpoint with no hiccups. They boarded the plane between 739 and 748. All four had seats in the first-class cabin because their plane didn't have a business-class section. Jahar was in seat 1B, closest to the cockpit. Nami was in 3C, Gamdi was in 3D, and Haznawi was in 6B. So the 19 men were aboard four transcontinental flights. They planned on hijacking the planes and turned them into basically huge guided missiles loaded with 11,400 gallons of jet fuel. By 8 a.m. on the morning of Tuesday, September 11, 2001, they had defeated all the security layers that American civil aviation system had in place to prevent a hijacking. So let's get into what went down. So the first hijacking is American 11. Um, American 11 was going nonstop from Boston to Los Angeles. On September 11th, Captain John Aganowski. Now, we're going to be saying a lot of names here, and I know it can be kind of annoying and kind of confusing, but these people died during this act of terrorism, and I think mentioning them is sort of a way to honor them. So uh, just bear with all the naming. Um his co-pilot was First Officer Thomas McGinnis, piloting a Boeing 767, and it carried full capacity of nine flight attendants and 81 passengers were on board, including the hijackers. So yeah, the plane took off at 7.59. Just before 8.14, it had made it to 26,000 feet. All communications and flight profile data were normal. At that same time, American 11 had its last routine communication with the ground when it acknowledged navigational instruction from the FAA's uh, air traffic controllers. 16 seconds after that transmission, ATC instructed, so I'm just going to short ATC for those of you who don't know, ATC's air traffic controllers. So they instructed the plane's pilot to climb to 35,000 feet. That message and all messages thereafter were not acknowledged. From this and other, uh, other evidence, it is believed the hijacking happened around 8.14 a.m. or shortly after. Reports from the flight attendants in the coach cabin, Betty Ong and Madeline Amy Sweeney, 
tell most of what we know about the hijacking. The reports are that two hijackers, probably Whale al-Shari and Walid al-Shari, stabbed two unarmed flight attendants. There are not reports on how the hijackers gained access to the cockpit. The cockpit doors must remain locked and closed during the flight, according to FAA rules. It was speculated by Ong that the hijackers may have jammed their way in, maybe injuring a flight attendant and using that to bait the pilots to open it, injuring flight attendant, injuring a flight attendant uh, in order to get the cockpit key, or maybe forcing the doors open themselves. Shortly after that, uh, Ada, the only terrorist trained to fly a jet, would uh, would have had would have gone into the cockpit, probably joined by Omari. During all of this confusion and chaos, a passenger by the name of Daniel Lewin, in a last-ditch effort to fight for his life and everyone on board, was stabbed by one of the hijackers, probably Satam Sakani, uh, who was seated right behind Lewin. Lewin served four years as an officer in the Israeli uh, military. He made an attempt to stop the hijackers, completely unaware one of them was sitting right behind him. The next thing, the hijackers wanted everyone uh, out of the first-class section. They sprayed mace, pepper spray, uh, or some sort of irritant to move everyone back to business class. They also claimed they had a bomb, so I'm sure that helped get everybody to move uh, a little quicker. quicker. Uh, about five minutes after the hijacking began, Ong contacted the American Airlines Southeastern Reservations Office in Cary, North Carolina, via an air phone to report an emergency on board the flight. Ong should be commemorated for this because this was just one of the several occasions that flight attendants took action that was out of the scope of their training on this horrible day. Uh, the call lasted approximately 25 minutes, which I think is extremely long given the circumstance at hand. Uh, at 8.19, Ong reported, quote, The cockpit is not answering. Somebody stabbed in business class. I think there's mace that we can't breathe. I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked, end quote. Uh, and there is a, an audio clip that we're going to add uh, to this episode as well. Number three in the back, um, the cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Which flight do you want? Flight 12. And what seat are you in? Ma'am, are you there? Yes. What, what, what seat are you in? Ma'am, what seat are you in? We're, we just left Boston. We're up in the air. I know. We're supposed to go to L.A. and the cockpit's not answering their phone. Okay, but what seat point. are you sitting in? What's the number of your seat? Okay, I'm in my jump seat right now. Okay. At 3R. Okay, you're the flight attendant? I'm sorry, did you say you're the flight attendant? Hello? Yes, yes. hello? What is, what is your name? Hi. You're going to have to speak up. I can't hear you. Sure. What is your name? Okay, my name is Betty Ong. I'm number three on flight 11. Uh, and then she told, uh, she told of the stabbings of the two flight attendants. At 8.21, one of the American Airlines employees receiving Ong's call in North Carolina, Nydia Gonzalez, alerted the AA Operations Center in Fort Worth, Texas. She spoke to Craig Marquise, the manager on duty. Marquise soon realized this was an emergency and instructed the airline's dispatcher responsible for the flight to contact the cockpit. At 8.23 a.m., the dispatcher tried to contact the aircraft but did not reach anyone. 
Six minutes later, the air traffic controller specialist in AA Operations Center contacted the FAA's Boston Air Traffic Control Center about the flight. They were already aware. The reason Boston knew about the problem was because the idiot hijackers attempted to contact the passengers. The mic was keyed, and one of the hijackers said, Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you'll endanger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. Air traffic. We also have a, um, sorry, we also have a recording of that as well. Is that American 11 trying to call? Somebody. We have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any move, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. Air traffic controllers heard this because the fuckers sent the transmission to the air traffic controllers, not the passengers. They obviously did not know what they were doing with the advanced technologies inside the cockpit. These fucks learned how to fly in single-engine planes, which, if you don't know, are not nearly the size of these planes. Also... And they, 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 they flew them poorly. I mean, every report that I heard or that I read said that they flew the single-engine planes badly. Well, and yeah, and I'd hate to be on a turbulent jumbo jet. Well, no, apparently they flew them perfectly. I mean, I don't know. You know, no, we'll just, that's the next episode, so we'll just just put a pin in that. (laughs) Also, at 8.25 a.m. and again at 8.29 a.m., Sweeney got through to American Flight Services but was cut off after she reported someone was injured on board the flight. Three minutes later, Sweeney was reconnected to the office and began relaying updates to the manager, Michael Woodward. At 8.26 a.m., Ong told Gonzalez that the plane was flying erratically again. Around this time, Sweeney told Woodward that the hijackers were Middle Eastern, naming three of their seat numbers. One spoke very little English, one spoke excellent English. She told him that the hijackers had gained access to the cockpit and the plane was in a rapid descent. At 8.41 a.m., Sweeney told Woodward that the passengers and coach were under the impression that there was an emergency in first class. So I'm guessing even at this point, people in coach don't even know what the fuck's going on in first class. I know anytime I fly coach, I don't... There could be a dance party going on in first class, and I don't know anything about it. Well, plus, I mean, we've never heard of this. I mean, we don't... This is the first time this has happened. We've never had planes hijacked and flown into buildings, so people aren't... That's This is the last thing on their mind. Right. Besides the, you know, the flight attendants because they've been trained for this kind of stuff, but regular Joe Schmoes are probably like, well, I guess someone shit their pants in first class or something, so right. um, I'm just going to hang out back here and eat my peanuts. So they don't... <laughs> I don't even think... They've they, you you got to ask for those nowadays. Yeah. One time I got... Um, I'm going to get off topic here because it's worth it. One time I got cheese nip thins on a plane on a Southwest flight. Oh my fucking God, they were so good. So if anybody out there knows how to get cheese nip thins that aren't $18 a box on Amazon... Let me know, and I will buy them shits because they were so fucking good. Dude, I'm all, all about that crane apple soda, bro, or juice, whatever it is. Hell yeah. So other flight attendants were busy at duties uh, such as getting medical supplies while Ong and Sweeney were reporting the events. At 8.41 a.m. in American Airlines Operations Center, a colleague told Marquise that the air traffic controllers declared Flight 11 a hijacking and, quote, think it's headed towards Kennedy airport in new york city they're moving everybody out of the way they seem to have him on primarily radar 
and by him, it's American Airlines, I guess. American 11, yeah. Yeah, American 11. They seem to think he is descending. <clears throat> so they're already assuming the pilot is male, but I guess this has all been reported. Well, they have the seat numbers, so they have names. And, That's right. And, and all that. So this is... Oh, this is where it gets real fucking heavy. Right. So at 8.44 a.m., Gonzalez reported losing phone contact with Ong. About this same time, Sweeney reported to Woodward, something is wrong, we're in a rapid descent, we're all over the place. Woodward asked Sweeney to look out the window to see if she could determine where they were. Sweeney responded, we're flying low, we're flying very, very low, we're flying way too low. Seconds later, uh, she said, oh my god, we're way too low, the phone disconnected. At 8.46 a.m., American 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. All on board, along with an unknown number of people in the tower, were killed instantly. I mean, just... I feel horrible for the people on the plane and the people in the building, but imagine that air traffic controller, like... Because you know the call was probably listened to by a million people, so you have the beginning time, you have the ending time... And you have the time it hit the tower. So he knows that at 8.46 and 40 seconds, when the call ended, that's when the plane hit. And that's why, I mean, just... So now we're going to talk about the hijacking of United 175. So United Airlines 175 was scheduled to depart for Los Angeles at 8 a.m. Captain Victor Ser... Serakini? Yeah, that looks right. So Captain Victor Serakini and First Officer Michael Horrocks piloted the Boeing 767. It carried seven flight attendants and 56 passengers were on board. United 175 pushed back from its gate at 7.58 and departed from Logan Airport at 8.14. By 8.33, it had reached its cruising altitude of 31,000 feet. The flight had just taken off as American 11 was being hijacked, and at 8.42, the United 175 crew completed their report on a, quote, suspicious transmission overheard from another plane, which turned out to be Flight 11. So all of this is playing out... Like, the first one is playing out while the second plane is about to be hijacked. So these guys, they're, they're overlapping. It's, it sucks how organized they were. This was, this report of a suspicious, this report of a suspicious transmission was United 175's last communication with the ground. So that means the hijacking took place between 842 and 846. They used knives, mace, and the threat of a bomb, according to some passengers, so same M.O. the whole way across. They stabbed members of the flight crew, and both pilots were killed. The calls came from passengers from the back of the plane, who had originally been seated at the front of the plane, indicating that the hijackers again moved everyone to the back of the plane. So, the first indication something was wrong with Flight 175 was at 847, when the plane changed beacon codes three, changed codes twice within a minute. I don't know what beacon codes means, but it sounds serious. Apparently they're not supposed to change that rapidly. Yeah, apparently not. So, at 8.51, the plane deviated from its assigned altitude, and a minute later, New York City air traffic controllers began repeatedly attempting to reach the aircraft unsuccessfully. So this part, I mean, people always say having a kid makes you soft, and it does. I mean, (laughs) watching we've been watching MasterChef Junior, and it makes me, like, it like warms my heart to do, see these. Do kids. you cry when you watch it, dude? I mean, almost. Yeah, I think you Sometimes. cry. I think you cry when you watch Master Chef Junior. Anyway, you watch it without crying. So at eight fifty two <laughs> in Easton, Connecticut, a man named Lee Hansen received a call from his son, who was on board Flight One Seventy Five. 
His son Peter told him, I think they've taken over the cockpit. An attendant has been stabbed, and someone else up front may have been killed. Call United Airlines. Tell them it's Flight 175 from Boston to L.A. Lee Hansen then called the Easton Police Department and told them what his son had said. So at 8.52, a flight attendant called a United office in San Francisco and spoke to Mark Polis Castro. He told them the flight had been hijacked, both pilots had been killed, a flight attendant was stabbed, and the hijackers were probably flying the plane. I mean, if the pilots are dead, who's flying? who else would be flying right. the plane? I guess maybe the autopilot? I don't know how autopilot works. I mean... I think you I, still I, have to pay attention to shit. Steer? I mean... <laughs> Do you steer a plane? I think it just keeps all your settings the same. Like, you, you can maintain the same altitude for a long period of time, but... Right, I think it just keeps you on the straight and narrow. Don't catch me... No, yeah, don't, don't catch me lying. I'm not a fucking pilot. I don't know about <laughs> So, the call lasted about two minutes, and after Police Castro tried to reach the aircraft, but was unsuccessful. At 8.58, the plane turned to head to New York City, and at 9 o'clock, Lee Hansen received another call from his son, Peter. It's getting bad, Dad. A stewardess was stabbed. They seem to have knives and mace. They said they have a bomb. It's getting very bad on the plane. Passengers are throwing up and getting sick. The plane is making jerky movements. I don't know. I don't think the I don't think the pilot is flying the plane. I think we are going down. I think they intend to fly to Chicago or someplace and fly into a building. Don't worry, Dad. If it happens, it'll be very fast. I mean, imagine getting that call from your kid. Like I can't. I mean, you don't have a kid. But yeah, I don't have any kids. I can't fuck, imagine that. Man. That's. I just so, I just have to imagine that it's gonna it it's gotta be. Uh, Impossible. I mean, you're so helpless. To cope with, yeah. And that's not even the worst part. This is the worst part. The call ended abruptly. Lee heard a woman scream right before the call ended. He turned on a TV and saw the second plane hit the World Trade Center. So he saw the plane Damn. the sun was on hit the fucking building. I mean... That's crazy. God. So at 9.03 and 11 seconds, United Airlines Flight 175 struck the south tower of the World Trade Center. All on board, along with an unknown number of people in the building, were killed instantly. I mean, it's just like... It, it starts to get repetitive after a while because they do the, they had, they do the same thing every single time. Like, they, these guys are stupid as shit, but they were somehow managed to organize all of this and pull it off somehow. Well, I mean, it wouldn't have worked if they would have picked three different mornings. No, it had to all happen the same day. Yeah, absolutely. Because as we get into this, we'll see that pl- flights started to get grounded because they saw that, oh, maybe there's this is happening more than once. Because when it first happened, when the first plane hit, people th- assumed it was an accident, like the pilot was flying too low and it was an accidental crash. But then the second one happened, and they're like, oh, shit, that, that's... That's a target, man. Accident. Yeah, no. Yeah. So the hijacking of American 77 was scheduled to leave from Washington Duels from L.A. at 8.10 a.m. The aircraft was a Boeing 757, piloted by Captain Charles F. Burlingham. Burlingame? Burlingame. It's Burlingame. And First Officer David Charbois. There were four flight attendants, and on this day, the plane was carrying 58 passengers. The flight pushed back from its gate at 8.09 a.m. and took off at 8.20 a.m. At 8.46 a.m., the flight reached its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. At 8.51, the flight transmitted its last routine radio communication. The hijacking is believed to have happened between 8.51 and 8.54 a.m. The same as the other hijackings, the hijackers had knives and moved everyone to the back of the plane. It is reported, though, that they had box cutters. 
A passenger also reported that the pilot made an announcement that the plane had been hijacked. No mention of stabbings or mace were reported, but the passengers in the back of the plane started in first class. At 8.54 a.m., the aircraft deviated from its assigned course, turning south. Two minutes later, the transponder was turned off. Air traffic controllers repeatedly tried to make contact with the plane, but were not successful. At 9 a.m., American Airlines Executive VP Gerald Arpe learned about there being no communication with Flight 77. He knew this was now the second American Airlines in trouble and ordered all American Airlines flights grounded uh, into the Northeast. Shortly before 9.10 a.m., suspecting that American 77 had been hijacked, American, uh, American Airlines headquarters concluded that the plane that hit the second tower was 77. After learning that American Airlines was missing a plane, he extended the ground nationwide. Some point between 9.16 and 9.26 a.m., Barbara Olson called her husband, Ted Olson, to tell him the flight had been hijacked. They were cut off for about a minute into the conversation. Well, they were cut off uh, after about a minute into the conversation. Shortly after the first call, she reached him again and asked her husband what she should do. He asked her where she was. She said she was flying over some houses. Another passenger reported that they were heading northeast. He then told her about the other crashes and hijackings that day, but she seemed unusually calm about it. At that point, the call was cut off. At 9.29 a.m., the autopilot for American 77 was disengaged. The aircraft was at 7,000 feet and approximately 30 mi 38 miles west of the Pentagon. 7,000 feet. Like, thinking of, like, in terms of, like, a plane in the air, 7,000 feet is not that high. I mean, they fly 35,000 feet for the cruising altitude, 7,000 feet. Yeah, it's not too much like, higher than what, what it looks like when you see them coming in, you know? Yeah, it's, low. it's not that high. At 9.32 a.m., controllers of the Duels Terminal Radar Approach Control observed a primary radar tracking eastbound at a high rate of speed. This was Flight 77. So Flight no, 77... Gonna... Huh? Go ahead. Flight 77 wasn't the one that flew into the tower like they had no, no, suspected. No, this is the one that hit the Pentagon. Right, but they were saying that they thought that one was the one that hit tower, the second tower at first. Right. Okay. But when they saw this plane on the radar, they didn't assume that it was an, uh, a passenger aircraft. They thought it was a military plane because of the way it was flying. Because this right. dude did an almost impossible 330-degree turn while dropping 2,200 2, feet. I mean, it's... I just assume when you're looking at a radar, you see, like, the... the I mean, if it's one of their own aircraft, they see the 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 aircraft call number. Right. I don't know how air traffic... I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I could be wrong. I could have just made that up. At 9.34 a.m., Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport advised the Secret Service of an unknown aircraft that was headed in the direction of the White House. American 77 was then five miles west, southwest of the Pentagon and began a 330-degree turn. At the end of the turn, it was descending through 2,200 feet, pointed towards the Pentagon and downtown Washington. The hijacker pilot then advanced the throttles to maximum power and drove toward the Pentagon. At 9.37 a.m., with 46 seconds on the clock, American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon, traveling approximately 530 miles per hour. All on board, as well as many civilian and military personnel in the building, were killed instantly. 530 miles per hour. These people are right above the ground. I mean, there was no damage to the lawn of the, pe of the Pentagon, so this dude dropped the plane 2,200 feet in a 330-degree turn, 
who couldn't fly a fucking single engine plane. Right. And kept the plane about five feet off the ground while crashing in. I mean, it just. It just... Next episode, though. Yeah, it's an interesting we'll angle. Talk about that on the next episode. It is uh, crazy how he just a month after not being able to fly could just fly this fucking plane like a professional. Right. It's crazy, man. Well, I mean, he must have watched some YouTube videos or something to figure it out. I don't know. Well, speaking of YouTube, social media, uh, media, uh, this next one that you're going to cover is probably one of the uh, more known ones. Uh, I, I believe they made a movie about it. I'm sure there were yeah, books about it. this is the hero it. flight. This is the, the heroic turn of events of 9-11. Yeah. It's uh, United Airlines Flight 93. So at 8.42, Flight 93 took off from Newark Liberty International Airport bound for San Francisco. It was, kind of, it was piloted by Captain Jason Dahl and First Officer Leroy Homer. There were five flight attendants and 37 passengers, including the hijackers. And the takeoff was scheduled for nine, but it was delayed due to heavy morning traffic. So I'm sure these guys were sweating fucking bullets, worrying that their plane was going to get delayed and they were going to uh, fuck everything up. I do that when I don't well, have they, an agenda on the airplane. They kind of fucked everything up anyway. Yeah. So. so the hijackers had planned to take planes that were scheduled to depart, to depart at 7.45, 8 o'clock, and 8.10. Three of the flights had taken off within 10 to 15 minutes of their planned departure, and when United 93 took off, it was more than 25 minutes late. But, by all accounts, the first 43 minutes of Flight 93's trip were routine. Radio communications from the plane were normal, speed, direction, altitude were all spot on. And at 9.24, United 93's pilots were told of the other hijackings and to practice extra cockpit security. At 8.26, Captain Dahl replied to that transmission with, Ed, confirm last message, please, Jason. That was at 9.26. The hijackers attacked 93 at 9.28 while traveling 35,000 feet above eastern Ohio. The plane suddenly dropped 700 feet. 11 seconds into the descent, the transmission of Mayday was declared by either the captain or the first officer. The second transmission, 35 seconds later, was saying the flight was continuing. The captain or the first officer could be heard shouting, hey, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here, on that transmission. So I'm assuming that the hijackers were telling them that the plane was continuing, but you can hear the captains in the back saying, get out of the here, assuming the cockpit. So at 9.32, the pilot, probably Jahar, made the following announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, here, the captain, please sit down and remaining sitting. We have a bomb on board, so sit. What a fucking way with words this guy had, right? He's a poet. Passengers started making calls to loved ones via airphones and cell phones. Um, I mean, this is obviously the, before the days of the iPhone 10, so these guys were probably on little Nokia phones or little Motorola flip phones. Because if 9-11 were to happen today, we'd probably have all kinds of video from inside the flight, inside the plane, inside the buildings, and everything else. This was like seven years before the iPhone. Yeah, this is 2001, so I mean, it's... A very, very long time ago. So they told the events of what was happening and found out what had already happened in New York. I mean, this must have sparked something in the passengers because at 9.57, the passenger assault began. It, it was so intense. I mean, the, the, the unity of these people was so intense that they were ending calls with their family to join in the fight. Even one guy ended his call with, everyone's running up to first class, I've got to go, bye. Like, these people were, I mean, no other way to say it, they were united. You know what I mean? United 93. These people were fucking going to... They weren't going to let this plane just, you know, they weren't going to just let it go. They were like, fuck these guys. We can take, there's way more of us than there are of them. Well, I mean, that fight or flight kicks in. I believe. Yeah, no pun intended. It, well, as cynical as I can be about a lot of things, uh, I, I believe more people than not uh, have more fight than flight. It's just exactly. instinct. I mean, when it comes down to it, I mean, you can never, we always say on the show, we say it every time we do a weird, like a crazy situation, you never know what you're going to do in that situation. But. 
I mean, this was a significant amount of people to where these hijackers felt threatened by it. Right. So now we're getting down to literal seconds in the turn of events. So the cockpit recorder captured the muffled sound of the passengers attacking the cockpit door. In response to this, Jarrah began to roll the plane to the left and to the right, trying to knock the passengers off balance. It did fuck all to stop them. So at 9.58, Jarrah told another hijacker in the cockpit to block the door. So these dudes are sweating. These dudes are getting worried that they're not going to be able to carry out their mission. So Jarrah continued to roll the plane to the right and to the left, but, again, it did nothing. The assault continued on to the cockpit door. At 9.59, he changed tactics and pitched the nose of the airplane up and down to try to stop the assault. And at 10, at 10 o'clock and 3 seconds, the plane was stabilized. And 5 seconds later, Jarrah asked, is that it? Shall we finish it off? And then a hijacker responded, no, not yet. When they all come, we finish it off. I'm assuming he means when they come into the cockpit. I'm guessing that's what he's talking about. Then they, they put the plane down. But it makes it sound like their plan was to put the plane down in the first place. Maybe, maybe he meant, is that it? Like, are they going to stop attack? I don't know what they're getting at here. Well, I mean, it was, maybe he was just asking if he should stay on course or just drive it into the ground now. Yeah, because they're not going to be able to, these people are going to get in here. So, again, the sounds of fighting continued, and Jarrah again pitched the plane up and down. And at 10 o'clock and 26 seconds, a passenger shouted, In the cockpit, if we don't, we'll die. 16 seconds later, a passenger yelled, Roll it, which I don't know what he's telling the roll. I'm thinking maybe the food cart, maybe? Just crash it into the door to try to open it? I don't know what they're rolling. Um, Jarrah stopped the violent maneuvers at about 10.01 and said, Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest. He then asked another hijacker in the cockpit, is that it? Shall we put it down? To which he replied, yes, put it down and pull it down. So the passengers continued their assault and at 10.02 and 23 seconds, a hijacker said, pull it down, pull it down. The hijackers remained at the controls but must have figured the passengers were seconds away from overcoming them. The plane headed down, the control wheel, and was turned to the right, and the plane went onto its back, and one of the hijackers began shouting, Allah is the greatest, over and over again. With the passenger sound of attacking still happening, the plane plowed into an empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 580 miles per hour, about 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. Jarrah's objective was to fly the plane into symbols of the American Republic, the Capitol, or the White House, probably the White House, but was defeated by the passengers of United 93, so... I mean, there's a lot of heroes on 9-11. There's a lot of victims on 9-11, but I definitely think that the people of United 93... Were successful. I mean, it's... As far as... As far as... Saving others. Given, yeah, I think that... It definitely sucks that it happened, obviously, but they did the best with what they had, and they saved other... They, it was very sacrificial, is what I'm getting at. They sacrificed a lot to to save other people but I mean even if they could have got in there taken the, the hijackers out and one of them was flying the plane I mean that would still be fucking terrifying I mean that would be so fucking scary to be the person having to land that plane be- by having someone telling you how to do it I mean it'd be it would be incredibly scary right I but I'd much I mean, rather be that dude than the guy on the other side of the cockpit door just waiting for us to fucking hit something yeah I mean at, at least they stood up not saying anything bad about the other passengers they didn't know what was going on these people they knew that planes had been hijacked they knew about new york they knew about the pentagon so they were like we're gonna get crashed into something we need to stop this i mean they had the upper hand as far as knowledge goes well yeah first class has wi-fi bro before wi-fi was wi-fi 
Well, now they have Wi-Fi. You can get Wi-Fi everywhere in the plane. Now. Right, but this is, now. you know, 17 years ago. First, you know, uh, uh, you, you didn't have internet on the airplane. I mean, people were looking at newspapers and reading books. This wasn't like the time of being on your phone the whole thing. Yeah, I don't even you know, think Kindle is, Fire was a thing. Yeah, this is like newspapers and shit. Like, these people, I mean, they they didn't know. They didn't have information at their fingertips like we do now. It's, it was a very different time back then as far as technology goes. But that about sums up where we're going to stop for the official story of 9-11. We probably will pick up on the next episode with the towers collapsing and um, the World Trade Center 7 that collapsed as well. And then after that on the next episode, we'll cover that briefly to pick to finish this one out. And then, yeah, so we'll pick up with the conspiracy after that. As always, you can follow me on Instagram, which I changed my Instagram name. Actually, it's Gnarly Davidson now. <laughs> I heard it on a show, and I thought it was hilarious. So now my Instagram name is Gnarly Davidson. Uh, so you can follow me on there. You can follow Johnny at Johnny2Jokes. You can follow the show at Mason Jar Chronicles Podcast. And, um, yeah, you can – oh, and you can – um, sorry, you can go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Chronicles to become a patron and get the most out of the show you can also we would love it if you guys would go to your apple podcast app and leave us a review on there so we can know how we're doing on the show uh we'd love to hear your feedback we've got a few reviews on there and we, we like feedback we want to hear how we're doing it lets us know if we're doing a good job if there's something we can change it makes johnny angry i mean it's, it's no man i like to work with it <laughs> i like to have no, fun okay. with it but uh, yeah no we all well, yeah the criticism's good i can i can rant in. So yeah, it's, it's nice to have someone every now and then stand up and be like, "All right, bro, chill the fuck out." It's so I'm yeah, working tune on in, it. Uh, for the next episode to get the conspiracy side of this story, and we will see you guys in two weeks. Later. Later. Later.